0: Hi, I'm Samantha, a past guest on C-Jam's HandyLink. You're listening to HandyLink on C-Jam 99.1 FM, reaching high ground in Windsor, Detroit.
1: Hello and welcome to HandyLink, sponsored by the Italian-Canadian Handy Capable Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities for individuals with disabilities in Windsor-Essex. For more information, check out ICHA on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. The first segment of our show is a post interview. Some of the events referred to may already have passed. In this segment of our show, Stephanie Craig Kristen Schramer will be updating us on their Turner's work. So recently, yes. so recently, Kristen, Steph was on talking about her dissertation and some of her her work and how it connects to Turner's syndrome. I understand you've been doing some work in that arena yourself. I
0: have, yes. I just completed uh, the work on my dissertation uh, recently where I had women with Turner Syndrome go out and take photos that represented their experiences with the condition, uh, as well as their experiences with uh, Turner Syndrome community. So organizations like the Turner Syndrome Society of Canada and the Turner Syndrome Society of the United States. Um, So it was a very exciting project, and uh, recently just got to meet with my committee about that.
1: So do you find that projects like that put more of a, a real face on Turner Syndrome and speak to the actual people as opposed to the statistics of how many people have the condition and what it may be as opposed to the realities of it.
0: Yes, absolutely. It really does. And that was really one of the uh, motivating factors behind wanting to do this particular project was uh, the ability to really get that more um, personalized uh, approach to research and really put the voices of uh, these women first um, as as part of uh, as part of the
1: project. So, Steph, for those who might have missed our prior interview, can tell me a little bit about your work and how it connects.
2: Yeah, so for my dissertation research, I'm looking at how the media represents different disabilities, and the perspectives of people with those disabilities on a representation of their disability in the media. So one of the groups that I looked at was uh, women with Turner Syndrome, and I had them uh, watched a television episode featuring a character with Turner Syndrome.
1: I'm guessing the Law and Order episode.
2: Yes. (laughs) Yes, that's one of the only representations of Turner Syndrome in the media. And it was a very fascinating hearing their their perceptions on it and their experiences and, um, you know, just some of their suggestions of, of what they would like to see for future representations and just the, um, the really wide range of characters and experiences that they would like to see portrayed in the future. So, it, yeah, it's, it's been fascinating. You mentioned
1: to me earlier that uh, there are some upcoming projects with the Turner Syndrome Society. So this question is for each of you. Uh, what do you have on the horizon to promote awareness?
2: Oh, we have a lot of really exciting social and educational events coming up uh, throughout the summer that we will be doing over Zoom. So actually this Sunday, we are going to be having a uh, guest panel uh, presented by a woman with Turner Syndrome about her experiences uh, going through IVF to have her uh, two children. So she'll be talking about her experiences and we're very excited to hear from her and then um, next week, Friday, June 17th, we're going to be having a trivia night and just playing a fun online trivia game. And uh, another really exciting event that we have coming up in August is we've decided to start a book club for our members. And our very first book that we are going to be reading is called uh, Disfigured on Fairy Tales, Disability, and Making Space. And we are actually going to have the author. Um, her name is Amanda Leduc. Come in and speak with our group to discuss the the book with us. So we're very excited about that.
1: And Kristen, do you have anything uh, in terms of awareness and promotions lined up as far as turners?
0: I think Stephanie summed it up uh, really well, or went went through kind of our really some of our really cool up and coming things. Um, I will also mention that coming and do correct me if I'm wrong, Stephanie, but coming up in uh, uh, towards the end of August, you will also be having kind of an educational session on kind of getting back to school uh, with Dr. Uh, Jessica Kitchler, who is also from uh, the University of Windsor. We'll be uh, doing a little uh, talk about that, uh, which I think will will be uh,
1: great as well. So if each of you could see any one project come into being uh, just to debunk all those myths and stereotypes concerning Turner Syndrome, presenting the realities, and maybe even uplifting those affected. What would you like to see happen for the community? Do
2: you want to go first, Kristen? I was going to ask you if you'd like to go first. <laughs> um, I, I guess for me, I would really love to see a new, more modern representation of Turner Syndrome in the media. You know, the the Law and Order episode came out quite a few years ago, and I feel like some of the new medical information that we have, um, as well as just the, the general disability awareness and advocacy that has been Occurring in that area over the last, especially the last couple of years, I feel like um, would be really helpful and I, w- I would really love to see a new media representation
1: in the next few years. So, if you could send any message to the community about why it is there should be representation, and not only that, but accurate representation, what would you say? Why do you find that to be an important thing?
2: I... Feel like it's very important because just like with with any individual with any sort of disability, there's such a wide range of ways that it can impact you experiences, and I feel like it's so important to really to show that range to show that not everyone is going to be the same, not every case is going to be. The worst case scenario. And I also feel like people people want to see themselves in the the media and the things that they consume. They want to feel like they're like they're represented, like they have a place. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you,
0: Stephanie. And I also think it lends itself uh, beautifully to assisting in things like healthy identity development when you're able to do things like see yourself. Uh, represented and represented accurately um, within the media that you're consuming. So I think that's another really important um, component of it as well, um, having representation, but also having ac- um, access to accurate representation, as well as really helping to combat um, misconceptions that may be uh, prevalent within traditional uh, media portrayals of, of uh, different conditions as well
1: like to thank you both for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great.
2: Of course. Thank you. It's always great to chat with you.
0: Yes, thank you as always, Cam. It was great to be here.
1: My pleasure. Thanks. In this segment of our show, Elaine Dickin will be telling us about Myositis Canada. So what can you tell me about Myositis Canada?
3: We're an organization that was started... Um, We got our charitable status in December 2015. We have about 250 members across Canada. Um, We're a volunteer group of directors, board of directors, seven in total. We can have up to 12. And again, we're spread across Canada. Uh, We have three from Alberta and four from Ontario. So it um, makes for an interesting, uh, interesting meetings because you have to, you know, do the time difference and stuff like that. We've had a, a couple, um, over the last few years, we've had some national group meetings via Zoom. And we, um, we represent people that have um, polymyositis, uh, dermatomyositis and inclusion body myositis.
1: So, how does myositis typically affect a person?
3: Um, depends on which type of myositis you have. Dermatomyositis tends to affect or give you skin rashes, um, but they can respond to treatments. Um, all the myositis will eventually affect muscles, um, I have inclusion body myositis, and I was diagnosed in 2014, but um, I think I've started having the symptoms about six to seven years prior to that. It um, affects your quadriceps, your finger muscles, like I can't make a proper fist with my left hand. Um, it weakens the muscles. You have trouble um, like when you're sitting to get from a sit to a stand position, I struggle to do that. I have to push myself up with my arms. And walking becomes a problem. You, um, As I say, I can't unconsciously walk anymore. I have to think about where each one of my feet are going. And I have to watch where I'm going because stepping on a rock can you know, put me off balance and I fall. So there can be lots of falls. Uh, For polymyositis and dermatomyositis, again, it can affect the muscles, but they both respond to various drug treatments if they can find the right one and find a rheumatologist who who knows about myositis. Um, Inclusion body myositis at this point doesn't respond to any drugs, so, they just recommend exercise in an attempt to slow it down.
1: So, How does Myositis Canada go about reaching out to the affected community?
3: Uh, we've been trying to set up support groups in the various regions. Uh, we have quite an active Southwest Ontario uh, support group, but because they're meeting by Zoom, they can, you know, they encompass all of Ontario. Uh, Calgary has a good support group, Um, Edmonton did have, I'm not sure how well it did during over COVID, and um, we have people
1: interested in um, British Columbia and in the
3: Maritimes, but it's trying to find the right leader to um, start the group and keep it going.
1: So. Do you know offhand about how many people are affected by myositis?
3: Um, it's a pretty rare disease. Um, they say it's probably one thousand for every hundred thousand. Um, I'm not sure what that figure's based on. So,
1: so, in your time with Myositis Canada, what's been the greatest success you've experienced?
3: I think we, during, at the very beginning of COVID, we um, got the idea that we would send out face masks to all our members in the hope that it would, by people wearing the face mask, because it had our logo and our name on it, that it would start conversations. Um, and I think what happened is that by doing that, sending it out to our members, um, it it gave them hope that um, the organization was going to, you know, go be a, be more of a factor in their life, and that, and it certainly was for Ontario. Um, we found some good members. Um, I think the best thing we've done is with any money raised, we've given out grants for research studies in Canada. Uh, we've given out um, just. In Last year, we gave out a $25,000 grant for research for inclusion body myositis. We've given out grants for studies in dermatomyositis and also studies into um, myositis in general, trying to find the antibody that causes it.
1: So you could send any message to the community about the need to further research and to keep pushing forward. What would you say?
3: Keep talking to your doctors about it. Anybody that asks you a question about your disability, talk about it. Um, try and try and spread the word. It's um, it's so rare that it's you know most family doctors don't even know about it, and even though we're only giving small grants, it's with the hope that we can inspire
1: a Canadian researcher to make it their lifelong quest to find a cure. So, what are the next steps for Myositis Canada? Keep trying to establish support groups in British Columbia, the prairie provinces more, and in the Maritimes, and trying to raise funds for more research. So, do you ever encounter any myths or misperceptions about it? in terms of diagnosis
3: uh first off a lot of people get misdiagnosed i mean they're diagnosed with als um, or ms and um, a lot of people that see us walking down the street automatically think it's ms and which is understandable because most people have never heard of myositis i was just gonna say that um I wish um, when doctors go through their training that they probably maybe, they may read about it in a textbook or something. So in some ways, I wish we had the people to go out to the different, to at least spend an hour or a couple hours in person with um, new doctors. I'd
1: like to thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Okay. Andy Link will be right back after these commercial messages, so stay tuned.
0: We're back. That's right. Metro Detroit Youth Day is back. And this year's event is going to be better than ever. There will be celebrity guest appearances, games and prizes, live entertainment, sports clinics hosted by some of your favorite sports stars, lunch for kids ages 8 to 15, and so much more. And it's all free. So come out and enjoy the fun at Metro Detroit Youth Day 2022. It all begins Wednesday, July 13th at Belle Isle Park in Detroit. Youth must register to participate. To register, call the Michigan Youth Appreciation Foundation at 586-774-4000. That's 586-774-4000. Or log on to metrodetroityouthday.org. Metro Detroit Youth Day is inspiring youth to do the most good. We're back. We're back. Metro Detroit Youth Day is back.
1: Welcome back to HandyLink, sponsored by the Italian-Canadian Handy Capable Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities for individuals with disabilities in Windsor-Essex. For more information, check out ICHA on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. Earlier in our show, Elaine Dickin told us a little bit about myositis, and we heard about the latest Turner's work, Stephanie Craig, Kristen Schramer. In this segment of our show, Sumaira Ahmed will be telling us a little bit about the Sumaira Foundation. So, can you tell me a little bit about the Foundation's work,
4: yeah, so I guess I can start by introducing myself. Um, my name is Samira. I am a patient living with a rare uh, autoimmune disease called neuromyelitis optica. I was diagnosed in Boston where I live eight years ago. And when I was diagnosed, I, uh, there was no approved thre- treatment at the time. Um, they didn't know why it happens obviously there's no cure and the landscape was just very very different than where it is today so I was 25 years old when this happened my life kind of turned upside down overnight and I wanted to meet other patients which is why uh, a month after I got diagnosed I started the Samira Foundation And to be honest, uh, when I started it, I had no idea what I was doing. Sometimes I still don't, but um, I just knew that awareness had to be a priority if we wanted to get anywhere with science and fundraising and community development, et cetera, et cetera. So in short, um, the foundation is now eight years old. We are also global. We are focused on raising awareness for NMO and MAG um, AD, which is a related disorder. We fundraise to support research, um, are passionate about community development and uh, patient advocacy.
1: So for those who might not be as familiar with these conditions, how do they typically affect a person?
4: So it is a spectrum disorder, so it affects everyone very differently. Um, so Here are the list of possible symptoms Um, one might experience all of them and one might only experience one of them so it includes vision loss, paralysis, incontinence, violent hiccuping and vomiting, uh, weakness, numbness and in some cases even um, there's a cognitive effect as well and unfortunately uh, this disease has killed people so uh, death is a possible side effect of this rare disease. But we're seeing less and less of that, which is good.
1: So, do you know offhand about how many people are affected by NMO?
4: Yeah, so the, the numbers that I'm most familiar with, uh, the prevalence is about 10, in, 10 out of 1 million. And um, there's suspected to be about fifteen to 20,000 folks in the U.S., I believe there's less than a thousand identified in Canada, and I would say globally, um, maybe a couple hundred thousand. But those numbers aren't to be um, like set in stone because thirty-five percent of our patients are misdiagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and while the diseases are similar, they're different. Um, in terms of what kind of treatment they require and even, you know, the prognosis. Uh, NMO is episodic and multiple sclerosis is, uh, you know, progressive. So getting misdiagnosed with the wrong, you know, disease has a number of horrible, um, horrible outcomes, one of which is, uh, you know, just getting worse in symptoms because it's not being treated correctly. So So just to answer your first question, those are the numbers we know of, but I suspect that there are so many more patients out there that have yet to be identified as NMO patients.
1: So with the risk of uh, misdiagnosis and the similarities to other conditions, you ever encounter any myths or misperceptions when you mention NMO?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to debunk is that you cannot have NMO and MS. Um, It's either one or the other. So uh, that's that's something I hear all the time where it's like, oh, I have both. Mm, Actually, it's not possible. So it's been scientifically proven that it's not possible. So that's definitely one thing. uh, the other thing is is oftentimes confused. Oh, people always—it's an invisible disease for some people. So for myself, I—if you met me today, you would have no idea that I live with this rare disease. But you know, in fact, I do. And um, I think having uh, an invisible disease is a blessing and a curse all at the same time. And, uh, you know, the common misconception is because I look so normal or because other patients look normal and healthy that they're somehow rid of the disease. Um, So people assume that just because you look okay, you all of a sudden don't have it anymore. But it is, in fact, a lifelong chronic illness and diagnosis.
1: So in your time with the Foundation, has there been any success story that stands out for you?
4: Oh, course I mean in the last two years alone two three years alone we went from having zero FDA approved therapies to now we have three FDA approved therapies all with a very high efficacy rate and a reduction in relapse rate this is monumental for this community we went from having nothing to having choices that's huge We've also been able to identify an antibody for MOG. So that's uh, MOG AD stands for Myelin Oligodendrocyte Glycoprotein Antibody Associated Disorder.
1: Try saying that is 10 really times fast.
4: <laughs> What'd you say?
1: Try saying that 10 times fast.
4: I know, it's, it's a mouthful, but um, this was incredibly important because. While we identified uh, an antibody, I say we as if I did it, but out this community, identified an antibody, the scientific community, um, called Aquaporin-4 for NMOSD, there were still a number of quote-unquote NMO patients who were testing negative, myself included. It was about 30% of patients who tested negative for the antibody, but they were still treated and, you know, marked as NMO patients. But then there was, you know, further investigation and further research into these folks who were testing negative for the aquaporin four antibody. And lo and behold, they were able to identify another antibody and that's for MOG-AD. So this is great because people now have, you know, those, those people who were sort of in this uh, nebulous gray zone, some of them now have an actual antibody and a diagnosis. And there are actually several clinical trials going on right now for those patients as well. These diseases are very similar. Um, They're, in fact, treated very similarly, but they have their own antibodies. So I would say that's another breakthrough in science um, since I've gotten involved.
1: Like, thank you for taking time out to do this. But if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Okay. My friends... I'm often troubled by the double-edged sword of disability life, which is that a patient sometimes has to explain to a doctor their own symptoms. Now, I realize it's impossible for a doctor to know everything about every condition. However, the risk of treating someone for a condition they don't have that mirrors the symptoms of another can be potentially very dangerous. Which is why I always encourage all the patients Out there who might be listening, seek the best advice you can. If something's still wrong, there's no harm in going for a second opinion. You are the patient. You have the right to ask questions. You have the right to say, this is affecting me in a particular way. The fact is, no one can know everything about anything. Doctors study for years. Maybe they have a familiarity with a given disability. But it's more than just what's in the textbook, isn't it? It is a matter of a person's life, their ability to contribute in society. And being recognized for the fact this is one facet of who and what we are means it does not have to be a glass ceiling that defines us. People may respond in the textbook manner. They may not. It depends upon the individual, their motivations, their strengths, yes, even their support systems. Fact is, patients need to know from their end, doctors need to know from their end. It's a balancing act to create the best possible opportunities. This has been HandyLink. I'm your host, Cam Wells, reminding you, we're all equal, so get on out there and have yourselves a good one. Something tells me, you've earned it, folks. We'll see you next week.